it's very simple to see that when we speak and when we listen, it's in service of something. There's a, some reason that this organism, this personality is doing this action. Like right now, there's a certain purpose to my speaking. There's a certain purpose to your listening. And then this comes out. And as simple as that statement is, it actually provides uh, a really deep doorway into understanding some of the complexities, some of the problems associated with our speaking and our listening and also some of the enormous power of it. Uh, because this simple cause and effect, you might say, or motivation, uh, means that if we investigate how we're um, motivated throughout our lives and simply apply that to speech and to listening, then we can get a window into what is often invisible to us because our speaking and listening is so much a part of our lives that we don't really see it. We don't really explore it until perhaps we meditate while speaking, while listening, and then perhaps revealed by mindfulness and concentration is something quite uh, surprising. When we get this picture of the human experience as being uh, an upwelling of having such a sensitive um, body and such a powerful mind and the hormonal systems that work in this way to keep us uh, so uh, in such a state of excitement. And constantly trying to get that which would bring, let's say, pleasure, the sweet stuff, the good stuff, whatever it is we want, whatever we construe or have learned, ah, this is what I'm going for. This is, this is what motivates me. And seeking safety, seeking either the sense of a stable existence, always trying to get ourselves stabilized in the world. And the world is, of course, 
unstable, impermanent, and so it's a constant task. Or simply because we're so sensitive, seeking to buffer, to hold the world away, because it's simply too much at every level, as we've talked about. Not only are the bare senses really uh, refined until they become calloused because we can't stand it, but also the relational sensitivities are profound. And we're constantly moved by them towards and away and trying to figure out, trying to get, trying to stabilize, trying to find some way of being in the world that works. Motivated by these hungers, these desires, these urges, stimulated to the point of more or less constant alertness, agitation, preoccupation in such a way that we can't even see our own minds. We can't recognize the level of stress that we're living with. And we can easily go through our entire lives not knowing anything but that stress and therefore saying that is completely normal. Until you have something that touches something else, which many of us don't get. But you go to a meditation retreat, let's say, or you get really away from all of these stimulating factors in some other way. Let's say you take a three month trip into the bush and gradually down-regulate and come to see something that, wow, you just didn't know was possible. And you realize when you come back into the stressful life that, oh, now I see how I was, but you didn't see it before. And that can be disorienting. You can come back from a meditation retreat or come back from the bush and it can be disorienting. So this is, you know, the, the, the stress is orienting. We know what that is. And out of it comes all these behaviors, these lifestyles and so on. So speech and listening understood through this lens is exactly a means to enact those urges. It's a means to get the good stuff. It's a means to keep away the bad stuff. It's a means to protect and to hold at a distance. It's a means to uh, express the excitement of compassion, to express care, 
It's a means to act generously, to express the, 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 the love in one's heart as much as to express the anger that might be born of fear or to express the jealousy, to express the sadness and confusion. If we look at the the constantly recirculating complexity of body and mind, where the world is sensed, other people are sensed, experienced, and those sense impressions and perceptions touch into our history, each contact touching the conditioned history of a lifetime. And stimulating all of the sensations that are associated with emotions. The body is flushed with fight and flight and freeze, with grab and get away. And this further conditions the kinds of thoughts we have, where when we're in flight, not only what scared us is scary, but a lot of other things we look at are scary because that's the mode we're in. We're vulnerable, it's dangerous out there. Or if there's lust of any kind, all the other kinds of lust are also excited. The, you know, life becomes the feeding and the greed in all kinds of domains, not just one, not just food, not just sex, not just cigarettes, not just alcohol, not just drugs, not just media. You know, it's all feeds into each other like a, a river that just endlessly is poured into. So, in this body-mind recirculating cycle and the output of action to get and keep away and, and so on, we have this extraordinary power of speech and this extraordinary power of understanding language, of meeting. So now, what was a, you know, I've been talking about it largely as a individual phenomena like me or you going around with all of these urges and this recycling stuff. What happens 
when the pipe is opened between us. Right? So now what happens when I express anger to you and there's all the recirculating within your body mind and all of the fear and the reciprocal anger and so on. And now we have this system that's recycling, that's, you know, constantly, and it resonates with our, my whole conditioning. You say something nasty to me, and it touches all the other times that I've been attacked in that way. And all of the conditioned reactions that I then feed back to you, it touches into your history. So now it's not even just the two of us, it's, you know, your dad and my dad and your mom and my mom sitting here having this great argument, you know, and it just, right? And of course, we can expand that out, can't we, to this, this larger human system and the family system and so on. But it's, the point I'm making is that through language, this whole conditioned history can relate to your whole conditioned history with this exceptional power of touching in a word, a phrase, like, you shouldn't have done that. And just the word should touches all the shoulds of a lifetime, right? This concept, should, inadequate, blew it, you know, wrong. It's all these things in the word should. And so it reaches into your neural networks of all of the associations with should and didn't and so on. Activates all of those associated neural networks, not just one, not just the should network, but everything that branches off of it. So you're really, you're really traveling. All I said was you shouldn't have done that or something and you're off. And all of those neural networks are engaging all of the hormonal systems of the body. All of your muscles are getting engaged. All the juices. A little word, a sound. spoken from this mind and all of its shoulds moves across space, touches your ear, wiggles your ear, the signal goes to the brain, your brain hears the tone of voice as well as gets the language should and it indexes into this whole background. And something has moved from my mind to your mind. In this case, something accusatory, unwholesome. But it's in service of this organism's dysfunctional wishes, you know. So it's the power to encode some piece of experience 
in sound or in writing. Send it off and there's a decoding according to your system. And however imperfect my encoding was and however imperfect your decoding is, still something comes across, something with real potency. And it could just as well be, let's say, how much I care about you or you're unwell. And I say, please let me help you. I really, really want to help you. And perhaps something in your heart lets go and trusts me to help you. And something in, something in my heart is served by being able to speak that because I had such an urge to speak it. Right? The speech is in service of my wish to express this compassion, this care. I want to act to be of service just as much as I want to act to, to harm or just out of my own fears. And now that also touches you. The tone of voice, the language moves through the body. And maybe something can yield and let go and trust and be cared for. So we do this too, as we listen and receive and as we speak. So all of this power is in service of something. And it's in service, of course, of the sum total of our lives of our conditioning. That's what it's in service of. It's not in service of me and my goals. It's what's been conditioned to come forth. I can't claim it. So this extraordinary power to, um, in a way, um, externalize my mind, right? To speak what I feel, to speak what I want, even if what I want is simply, um, could you please bring me my shoes? Even if that's all it is, it's still an urging, a wanting, and something has moved from my mind, in this case, this desire and a wish for you to do something for me. And it touches the ears, is understood, and you then will respond as you respond. But it's gone from mind to mind. Something that we so take for granted and is so extraordinary, so powerful, that, you know, right now, even as I speak, something's moving from this mind to your minds. That's amazing.
So you've heard about the power of the word, the power of language. You know, it's sort of out there in the in the world as something, as a concept that, that speech is powerful, language is powerful, the written word, the pen is mightier than the sword, this kind of thing. And yet, if we're honest, our capacity to speak, to listen, to meet each other in language is so thoroughly uh, overlearned, so natural to us, that we do it without any thought. So here's this potent force for good and ill, constantly being employed mindlessly, like squirting up from us just in response to circumstances. You know, this comes up, I say this. This comes up, I say this. I'm with you, I say this. I'm, you're with me, you say something. Oh, I listen to that. Oh, I listen to that. Oh, I'm affected, I'm affected, I'm affected. I read this, I read that, and just all this, you know, mindless, automatic. But is it any less powerful just because we're not aware of the power? I don't think so. We're very sensitive creatures. We take this stuff in and it really matters. We put this stuff out. Ouch! You know, the old story, you can't unsay something, right? You've said something. You said that thing to your sister 10 years ago. Try taking it back now, right? So we could look at speech from an ethical standpoint and say, okay, let's, uh, let's learn how to do no harm. Let's learn right speech together. We could look at speech from a kind of a skill standpoint and learn how to listen for each other's needs and desires more skillfully and be more sensitive to how we cause harm when we speak or learn how to listen in such a way that uh, we understand more than we used to understand when we were completely preoccupied or self-centered. But if I hearken back to the purpose of meditation, maybe we could look at language, speaking and listening in light of that purpose. We talked about the tangle, right? The, the entanglement of being human. This, you know, the feedback loops internally and, and among us and the 
noise and confusion in which we live and which we remain not only tangled but pressured by all of these hungers that push us often invisibly to keep us in stress and 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 wanting and trying to just orient our lives to line up all of the dominoes and the checkers and the monopoly pieces until something works, right? And we stay within the tangle. But what we're talking about, when we talk about, when I talk about anyway, a spiritual path, a path of awakening, the awakening is the awakening from the tangle that there is a quality of peace. There is a, a capacity to be profoundly, profoundly awake. That's not just self-referenced in these cycles of stimulation, pain, hunger, and even in the altruistic side of it, even in the the side of it that we identify as good and kind, but still lost, still not awake in it. So what does speaking and listening have to do with that? Here is where the power of language to bring us to the edge of our prior capacities for remaining in awareness, in kindness, becoming concentrated, that bring us up to and help support us beyond our prior capacity for energy, diligence, joy, that bring us up to and move us through and beyond our capacity for generosity, for equanimity, The image of uh, uh, seeing into, if you will, of, of penetrating with one's awareness this constant tangle of ignorance and pressure. is um, profoundly uh, uh, strengthened and amplified by wisdom, by 
an understanding of what's going on within this system of hurt and confusion. Right? If we just dive in with just awareness, it's really helpful. It can really get quite deep. But it's very easy to get also disoriented, to not, to not know. Uh, there's so many points at which we can get derailed by our own conditioning and derailed by the, the, the uh, impulsion of the hunger and the, the clouding of the ignorance. And it's in this domain of wisdom of saying, well, okay, so just by way of example, why don't you take a look at when something touches the mind, is there a grabbing onto it? And you think, well, of course not. No, I, I, I don't like being angry. I don't want to grab onto it. I'm not grabbing onto it. But you just say, wait a minute, have a look. And you then bring awareness, right? The mindfulness, the concentration. And now when awareness comes up, you just have this framework of clinging. And you say, let's see. Not to make it up or anything. Let's just see according to this wisdom teaching about clinging, grasping. Then you see what happens. Then when the anger comes up, you see there is a gripping onto you know, self-protection or something you wanted that's being hidden from you or kept from you or gripping onto the emotion itself of fear and you hold on to the fear. There is a grasping and a clinging that you didn't see before because all you saw was you could see the bodily sensations, you could see the mind got confused, but you needed to be pointed towards this framework of clinging just as an example. And there's millions of them. Millions of examples, or shall we say, many, many examples of how the mind, if it has some guidance, can actually bring awareness to experience in a far more productive way than just awareness. And from a Buddhist standpoint, that's what all those teachings are. Those teachings are pointers. Say, go look for yourself, see what you see. And by the way, I'll also tell you how to look for yourself. If you meditate, if you get calm, if you do all this, that will help you look for yourself. But then there's these frameworks, Dhamma, Buddha Dhamma, teachings on the nature of the mind, the nature of the body, the nature of the human experience that say, look over here. And it's profoundly powerful. Things about the nature of conceit, the nature of self-making, things about the nature of doubt, the nature of um, uh, uh, wholesome giving, things like this. So here we have like a Uh, this potent body of wisdom. And how is it transmitted? How is it carried from mind to mind, heart to heart? 
Well, don't you think that speaking and listening has something to do with that? It has for the last 2,500 years, right? I mean, what you're receiving now is just at the tip of that two and a half millennial wave of transmission of teachings, largely by language. The whole notion of suffering and freedom in in a Buddhist context, or perhaps the notion of love in a Christian context carried through the stories and writings in the Christian tradition, and likewise for the Jewish tradition or any naturalist, maybe the Western philosophical tradition, and so on. So language is carrying these things. And when we meet each other in meditation and explore together, even the the little fragments of wisdom that I may carry when I speak to you and say something about what I've noticed about anger or about love, that let you then investigate it because it enters your, your heart, your, your ears, your mind. And likewise, whatever fragment of wisdom you carry about anger or love and you speak and it enters this mind, so it's not just some teacher at the front of the room or some Buddha or something like that. It's everywhere. There's those fragments of wisdom. If they can be touched in with see for yourself, a quality of investigation that's made possible by mindfulness, concentration, and so on. It's not just, it's not just everyday conversation, you understand? That's not what we're talking about. Everyday conversation will carry something, but it has nowhere near the potency we're talking about to cut through the tangle, because that's our, that's, that's our purpose here. That's what we're talking about. So, we've taken this quite audacious step forward to say we're going to bring together the meditative qualities, the mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. And we're going to put those together with language. That's weird because it it seems to go against our quite wise caution about conceptualizing and that mindfulness needs to get below the conceiving mind, right? And ultimately, it does. But it does so with the guidance and then the kind of the final launching off to release the language into the direct apprehension of experience. But it's been guided to that point by wisdom. So 
Likewise, as we speak together, the meditative qualities themselves can be fostered and carried as we remind each other to mindfulness, right? As we get really interested in what we're talking about and we go from conceptual interest or emotional mutual excitement, whatever begins to bring us to the moment, we, come to a, we, we can come to a place where the conceiving begins to soften, the emotional excitement just fades away and yields a kind of a energetic alertness. And we can, investigating this fact, let's say we're, let's say we're investigating doubt, right? and you touch down into doubt, I touch down into doubt, and I'm riveted by your humanity and you by mine, and we seem to be going towards understanding something. While we're doing this with language, conceiving, the mind is getting more and more concentrated. Right? We're really staying with this. If the calm and the mindfulness and so on can continue to follow in, we will find the place where language drops away and we'll touch some essence in a, in a moment of a pause, touching perhaps something about doubt in this case, or maybe something even beyond doubt, something where doubt has vanished because we found we had conceived the doubt, right? So this capacity can actually foster not just the wisdom pieces, but the meditative qualities of the mind, right? It can help guide us to stronger meditation if we also know how to drop it. The catch is that as long as we stay wrapped in the habits of language, then, of course, those habits come out of this whole web of excitement and entanglement we talked about, and it keeps that going. That's where the power goes, right? So we know how to do that. We know what that's like. That's called regular life, like all the stimulating and the self-making. I make you, and you make me, and we kind of, we do that dance where we stay, it's kind of happy, kind of fun sometimes, except when it's angry and not fun, but it, it, it all just keeps it going, you know? And we love it. We love it. We go to bars and parties to get it, to exist. You know, wow, okay, let's go exist. Going to a party so I can be so I can stay tangled, because I know what that's like. And it'll be, at least for a couple hours, fun entanglement. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know who's going to be there. <laughs> right? And once again, it's out of control and back where we started. But, so we know how to do that kind of speech. 
But when we come here for a retreat, we have to maybe learn or intuit into this other kind of speech where the pause is so important, where it can reveal this boundary of words and the wordless. It's a beautiful boundary. Really, really, to me. Uh, actually exciting. You know, even though the mind can be very still and bright, to touch that place between language and just apprehending experience is fabulous. Naming, and then the naming drops away. The mind is led by some words to look over here and drops the words and just looks over here. You understand what I'm saying? You know, it's like touching, it's like touching um, behind an emotion. You know, touching the, before it's coalesced into a something. That can only be known without the words. But the words bring you to the doorway if you're willing to drop them, willing to let them go. But if we're lost in the habits of entangling and where words are all about the self-referential system of becoming, well then of course there's not going to be any letting go. It's just more stuff. Is this making sense? It's quite beautiful really. So this is what we practice. We actually practice, just like we're practicing pause. And to pause at the boundary of words, to relax as the words kind of, you know, ripple, ripple across and reveal something behind and underneath. When we open, what kind of language is there? And yet the word open is just a word, but it points to the, to the vastness, the way trust emergence, a couple of words, weird words at that, you know? And it's like, wow, it points to the rising and vanishing of phenomena, to the insecurity of any life that we would grasp onto, to bring our language into this meditative experience and the meditative experience into language takes practice. It's really worth it. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.